0: See more of the people of God. I miss God's people. And I was just sitting here with joy in my heart. So I hear the sound of praise radiating from the voices, hearts of God's people. But just to be able to see you is. Uh, my great blessing. We are looking to come back next Sunday, but this was quite a surprise to me this Sunday. I drove up from the parking lot and I said, wow, there are a lot of cars here, some I don't recognize. <laughs> but that's how the Lord is. he will give you what you need, always. Well, let's see what the Lord will do. Mark's gospel, we continue our great journey through Mark's gospel, chapter 14. Today, the Lord be pleased. We'll preach verses 26 through 31 of Mark's gospel. Chapter 14, the Word of God reads, beginning at verse 26, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Listen to this. And they all said the same. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another treasure, this passage. Another treasure, another very powerful, powerful passage that you have assigned to me to preach. Oh, how unworthy I am, Father. My worthiness is only in Christ. I stand in humble dependence upon your wisdom, your knowledge, your power. Indeed, the feeling of your great spirit, to feel and control my mind, my emotions, my will, this tongue of mine, left to myself, the best I can do is make a mess. But, oh, Father, my desire is to preach your word, my aim, to preach your word, not so that people will hear this as the word of a man, but as it is the truth, the word of the living God, and you get glory. I pray that you would unite our hearts, center our mind in your word, center our mind on Christ alone. All who are here, all who are listening, heavily, Father, grip us with Your Word. We may hear You preaching to us. Work in us. You know what to do. Throw out that stuff that's no good. Change things around. Bring repentance in. True faith and true devotion, and deeper hunger, and deeper thirst, and encouragement and edification. Do all that you're able to do in terms of what I'm asking, and even more. It doesn't even make sense for me to think I can do any of that. So, Lord, we are resting, depending, trusting in you alone. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. The clear sighted Savior. The clear sighted Savior. You know, I'm talking about Jesus. A subtitle, if you will Never Say Never the clear-sighted Savior. Make sure that you never say never. Remember, Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's on his way to the cross. On Friday, he will die and pay the sin debt, the sin debt for all whom the Father has given him. This final scene in verses 26 through 31, this final scene of the Last Supper narrative, which runs from verses 12 through 31. This final scene serves as a transition from the Passover meal to the events that follow. And the events that follow are verses 32 through 42, the agony in Gethsemane, Jesus' arrest, verses 43 through 50. Verse 26 is transitional, concluding the Last Supper narrative with a hymn and commencing the journey to Gethsemane. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus is rejoicing on his way to the cross? Wow, we can learn so much from our Savior. The hymn was likely one of the Hallel hymns found in Psalm 113 through 118 that would conclude the Passover celebration. It would be, the setting here, it would be some time before midnight since the Passover had to end by midnight. Jesus and the disciples head east out of Jerusalem to the western slopes of the Mount of Olives, the location of the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the setting for these final words. I want to lift up three points for you beginning in verse 27 and running to verse 31. I want us to see first, in verse 27, the prophecies. I want us to see secondly, in verse 28, the promises. And I want us to see in verse 29 through 31, the pronouncements, the pronouncements. Let us begin, beloved, first as we look together in verse 27. Note first the prophecies, the prophecies, and let's learn from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ what he would have from us as we look together at the prophecies. There are two prophecies in verse 27, both are connected, as we will see, but first of all, we see a prophecy of a fall. A prophecy of a fall. We know that Jesus has been surprising the disciples. He spoke about betrayal earlier at the meal, when he said, one of you will betray me, and we know that that was Judas. On last Lord's Day, we saw the institution of the Lord's Supper in verses 22 through 25, and we saw these wonderful pictures of the gospel of Jesus Christ, wonderful pictures of our salvation. And now, Jesus prophesies a fall. And Jesus said to them, verse 27, you will fall away. Stop right there. They're on their way from the upper room in Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. They're walking. Now Jesus warns that all his disciples, all of his followers, Judas is not here right now. All 11 will fall away. We need to look at this word, fall, verb translated, fall away, can have a a variety of senses, including calls to fall, stumble, calls to sin. It can even mean calls to apostatize, it can mean to offend, to shock, anger. The word is used in the active voice, if you will, in chapter nine, verse 42, 43, and 45 of Mark. It is used to speak of something or someone who provokes or causes someone to sin. It is used in the passive voice in chapter six, verse three, of the people of Nazareth who are angered or offended by Jesus' words. It is used in the parable of the sore in chapter 4, verse 17, and it carries the sense of apostasy, of falling away from the faith. But how is it used here? Jesus says, all of you will fall away. All of you. Wow. That's 100% all of you, all whom I have taught, all who have seen my greatness, all who have seen the greatness of my power, the greatness of my words, the greatness in my teaching, the greatness of my person, all of you will fall away. Here, the verb has the basic idea of being caught in a trap. It does not mean, it does not mean that the disciples will feel offense at Jesus personally, but they would be caught and overwhelmed by what would happen to him that very night. Follow me. What's about to happen to Jesus in terms of his arrest, in terms of his unjust treatment and trials, and ultimately the cross, what's about to happen to him will stagger their faith and shake their confidence in him as the Messiah. It would challenge their loyalty to him. The shepherd is about to be struck and the sheep will be scattered. Now here's what it does not mean in reference to the disciples and here's the difference between a false disciple like Judas and the true disciples. It does not mean that they will lose their faith in Jesus, but rather their courage will fail and they will forsake him. Their faith will not be lost permanently, but it will be shaken. Please note the knowledge of Jesus again. Note the knowledge of Jesus as we will see in a moment uh, over against the ignorance and doubt of the disciples. We see the supernatural knowledge and unwavering certainty of Christ in the face of suffering. He has divine knowledge. He knows the heart of man. He knows the future. He has already foreseen both the betrayal by Judas and the scattering of the other disciples. He knows, doesn't he? He knows our hearts. (laughs) How foolish we must look sometimes trying to hide. He knows our hearts, he knows our tomorrow, he knows the next moment of our lives. He knows the sin before it enters our hearts. He had a full understanding of what would happen in the future, but he also had a full understanding of his father's will. So he knew he would be arrested. He knew he would be deserted by his followers, but watch him now. He knows all of that, but he does not shrink back from what his father called him to accomplish, namely our salvation. Oh, we have to pause and just thank God for our savior. What a savior we have. He knows and sees very clearly their hearts. But he says, I'm going to the cross anyway. That's good news. There's more I want you to learn from this, these very words of Christ, when he says all of you will fall away. Jesus warns the disciples and us to guard against the kind of sinfulness of which Most of us are most guilty. And I refer into sins of weakness rather than sins of intention. We're guilty of both. But most often we we do not plan on sinning. But neither do we hold up the shield of faith the way we should. I better say that one more time. Most often, we do not get up in the morning to plan on sinning, but we do not hold up the shield of faith the way we should. Sometimes we're walking along the path of life, not paying attention, and we end up stepping into something messy. (laughs) Jesus taught them I can't stay there, but Jesus taught them the weakness and failure of human flesh. Beloved, we need to remember Jesus' words here. We ourselves fail, others fail us. We ourselves fail, others fail us. One more time, we ourselves fail, others fail us. Christ alone is unfailing. Put your trust in him and and learn to live within the fellowship of failures knowing that Christ will never fail you. Never enter into any relationship and expect no failure. We see in this text The only one who never fails us is Jesus. Please notice, I'll move on in a moment, but please notice the straightforward approach of our Lord. Jesus warned the disciples that they they would desert him He spoke with devastating honesty. You will all fall away. He didn't rationalize it. He didn't do anything to try to ease their guilt. He confronted head on the fact that they would all fall away. For Jesus's words here in the 21st century Sounds out of place. You're not supposed to speak that directly. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you will all fall away. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing quite so helpful as straight talk from somebody Who's dedicated to your growth and well-being. Straight talk. Just tell the truth. Yeah. Don't try to make them feel good about themselves when you know that they're sinful. Hear it from Jesus. Practice it with Jesus's kind of care. Jesus loves them. Oh I believe if we just had more straight talk. We could untangle a lot of emotional knots in our families, in our churches, at work, among our friends, if we just had more straight talk. You know, later they would remember Jesus' words. And because they saw the care and the love and the compassion of Jesus as he spoke these words, they would be drawn back to the very person they sinned against. (laughs) They knew Jesus loved them in spite of their failures. Tell people the truth. That's what Jesus did. I want you to learn something else. As you can see, I got a lot out of the first opening words. I want you to think about Why was Jesus not bitter and extremely disappointed? I mean, I know he was disappointed, but why didn't it result in bitterness and and anger? How, How was Jesus safeguarded from disappointment, which leads to bitterness? I'll tell you why, and I'll tell you how. He saw the real state Of human nature. See, this point will bless you. That's something we need to remember about Jesus when we fail. Our sins can very easily harden our hearts against him and blind us to his grace. But do not ever think That Jesus is taken by surprise when you and I fail him. Don't ever think that he safeguarded because he knows human nature. He knows the human heart. He knows us. He's never surprised by our failure. And I'm not saying that to encourage sin, but I'm saying that to encourage repentance and confession. We act sometimes as if Jesus was surprised by what we did, and then we got to try to get back into his good graces. Jesus is never surprised by anything that we do. So go to him immediately. Confess your sin and the weakness of your flesh and, 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 and be flooded with the love that he has for you. That's what we learn just from you will all fall away. That's a prophecy about a fall. But secondly, that's a prophecy of a fulfillment. Note the verse again. And Jesus said to him, said to them, excuse me, you will all fall away for it is written I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's an Old Testament reference, finding its fulfillment in the person and work of Christ, in the Hebrew text of Zechariah 13:7, which is where this is from, "Strike the shepherd" is a command in the Old Testament text. It's a command by God to the sword to strike his shepherd, his shepherd, God's associate, as and as a result, the sheep. The people of God will be scattered. Now, in that context, I'm coming back to this one, but in that context, the point is that God will strike down his appointed leader and scatter his people as judgment for their sin. Now, Mark's context, or Mark's text has essentially the same sense, but I want you to notice something different. He puts the verb in the first person. I will strike the shepherd. The first person singular, I will strike, means that God the Father will strike Jesus as the shepherd, or if you will, allow him to be struck in fulfillment of his will. Follow me. Will you agree that there's going to be some evil things done to Jesus? He's going to be beaten beyond recognition. He's going to be tried unjustly. He's going to be handed over to the people unjustly. He's going to be nailed to a cross unjustly. Everything, nothing that happens to him will be according to justice except when the father strikes him because he dies as our substitute. (laughs) But this reminds us all of that evil that's going to happen to him, God is going to use to fulfill his greater purpose. Is God that sovereign? Yeah. We see that Jesus has an understanding of his suffering and his passion. He knows this. What I'm about to go through is ordained by God. It was the Lord who crushed him and caused him to suffer, Isaiah 53.10. So the ultimate agent of these events is God. And all that is happening is a part of God's will, God's design, and God is using it for God's purpose. I'm going to make a few observations here as well before we move on. Notice Jesus saw that scripture was fulfilled. Jesus saw that scripture was fulfilled in terms of what was happening to him. So Jesus, are you saying that when, when all of your disciples abandoned you, that's the fulfillment of scripture? He knew that his friends would abandon him as they, would, as they were overcome by fear? The, the scripture foretold that when God's shepherd was struck, the sheep would be scattered. Jesus knew that, 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 that the fulfillment of that, of that scripture was found in what would happen to him. He knew himself to be the shepherd of whom the prophet had spoken. He knew that the striking was his death. So why wasn't he unbalanced? Why wasn't he surprised? Listen to me, it was because of this teaching of scripture had saturated his heart and mind that nothing could ultimately surprise him and unbalance him. Scripture had so saturated his mind and heart that abandonment didn't surprise him, being struck by the Father didn't surprise him. Nothing that happened surprised him because he's walking according to the word. (laughs) Now follow me. This is true of Jesus in a unique sense. But I I want you to note something that Peter, And remember Peter now. Peter is the one through whom Mark gets a lot of his information in the writing of the Gospel of Mark, okay? Note what Peter would later write in in 1 Peter 2, 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, That you might follow in his steps. That word example is a very interesting word. It it, it would have been used of a teacher showing a child to write by writing a letter and asking the child to copy it down. (laughs) This is exactly what Jesus does. He says to all of us, look how my life was marked by self-control which came from my submission to my father's word. Now copy that. (laughs) And I say to you, all who are listening to me, submit your whole life to scripture. It is the rock on which all spiritual stability will be built. Jesus was stable, strong, and balanced because his heart and mind was saturated with the Word. We become unstable because of what we don't have dwelling in us. When the Word is dwelling in you richly, you have stability of life. Look at our Lord. Tell you something else about Jesus. I'm coming to the promises, but this verse will preach, as you can see. Jesus saw the hand of God in his experience. See, w- w- one of the reasons for the disciples' failure and our failure, one of the reasons was that they saw the on- they saw only the terrible circumstances they were in. Their vision was filled with sight of opposition and danger. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus didn't see that, Jesus saw that too. But 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 he could see beyond it to the hand of God. And that's why he placed the special emphasis on the identity of the one who would strike the shepherd. He knew his father would be the one doing the striking. It would be God his father. And however painful that was to him, he recognized that I can trust the one who strikes me. Oh, but my goodness, not one blow would fall upon him that was unnecessary for the salvation of men not one below. He trusts in his Father. And because he did, he endured faithfully. Saints, learn to focus. And think about where we are right now. Learn to focus on what God is doing in your circumstances. Do, do not be obsessed with well with, with either man or nature or, or, or what's going on in your life. Do not be obsessed with it. Recognize that God is working out His perfect purpose in the midst of all the chaos around you. Listen, I see COVID-19, but I'm more interested in seeing. What God will do with COVID-19 to further his gospel. What God will do with it for my personal sanctification, my personal growth, my personal commitment to him. How God is going to work, how God is working in me both to will and, and to do in the midst of all the chaos around me. If you focus only on the chaos, you're going down. But oh, I see another hand. I see a hand in our chaos that, that can take our chaos and can take all the mess of our lives and, and shape it to fit his purpose. Two prophecies. A prophecy of a fall. And a prophecy of fulfillment. Notice. The promises. The promises. Two promises in verse 28. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Note the first part of that verse, but after I am raised up. Wow. So, first we see a promise of resurrection. A promise of res- a resurrection. I mean, I'm not making it up, it's in the text. But, boy, he just, t- he just prophesied a fall, didn't he? But, he just prophesied being struck but strongly contrasts the darkness of his death with the light of his resurrection. But after I'm raised up, this passive voice points to God as the agent. Watch this. The God who will strike the shepherd, his father, will also raise him. (laughs) Because that fulfills his purpose and all of the striking would lead to the raising. So, the father will honor his son for accomplishing his mission and for inaugurating the new covenant by his shed blood that we've already seen in the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, Jesus seldom spoke of his coming death without also speaking of his resurrection. Because his death, apart from his resurrection, means nothing. Jesus had told these men that he's going to die for their sins, verses 22 through 25. His body is about to be given and his blood is about to be shed. He's on his way to, to the cross to give his life, a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. They're startled to hear that Jesus will die, but here's the comfort, he will be raised. Oh, the cross is not our final stop. Thank God for the cross. He would die on the cross, pay for our sins, and satisfy the righteous demands of God's judgment, God's wrath uh, against all of us. We deserve nothing but judgment. We deserve nothing but wrath. But Christ is our substitute. He would give his life the innocent for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous. They're take him down from the cross. They're bury him in a borrowed tomb. His body would lie in the ground for 3 days and then on that 3rd day morning he would rise from the dead. He would walk out of the grave in victory. All of our salvation is connected to that promise. Paul wrote about it in 1 Corinthians 15. I don't have time to go there, but Paul said, if there be no resurrection, all of our faith is in vain. We have no hope, but not only that, we have no life because Jesus can't give life if he didn't give it up. We have no future. All of our life is connected to that promise. The hymn writer picked it up and said, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Oh, let me put it in context. Because he lives, I can face corona. (laughs) Glory to God. See, the promise gives hope for today, for tomorrow, and for all eternity. That's a promise of resurrection. Watch this. I love the Bible, it's the most amazing book in the world by far. There's a promise of restoration. Pastor, where do you see that at? Go back to verse 28. But after I am raised, here it is, I will go before you to Galilee. Now what did Jesus just tell them in verse 27? He prophesied a fall, they're going to forsake him. They're gonna leave him, they're going to fall away. The phrase in verse 28, I will go before you to Galilee doesn't mean that he will arrive before them. That's not what Jesus is saying. He might arrive before them, but that's not his point. What it means is he will continue to be their leader, their shepherd, going before the sheep to protect the sheep. How do I know that? The prediction, the promise After my resurrection, I should go before you into Galilee is intimately related to the words spoken in Mark chapter 16, verse 7, words spoken after his resurrection. The angel said this, go tell his disciples and Peter (laughs) that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he told you. That statement, following after the prophecy of their fall, that statement is a promise of restoration. When the shepherd is struck, the sheep will be scattered. But in leading them back to Galilee, he says, I'm going to gather you again (laughs) as one flock. See, his words are. Uh, uh, Here, promise them restoration. It promises them forgiveness. Watch this, on the other side of failure. Sometimes on the other side of our failure, all we see is more failure. But Jesus says, look, look, look. (laughs) These men would fail God. They would fail him in a big way. Peter would deny him. I would forsake him. But Jesus says, I will go ahead of you. (laughs) I will restore you. Wow. You Remember in chapter 1, verse 16, Jesus first called the apostolic band at the Sea of Galilee. Chapter 1, verse 16. He calls them at the Sea of Galilee. When he's struck, they're scattered. He's going to regather them in Galilee. So Jesus sees a renewal and completion of the call to discipleship. Listen very carefully. The kingdom of God, saints, that Jesus brings and embodies cannot be ruined by human failure. <laughs> I have to say that again. The kingdom of God that Jesus brings and embodies cannot be ruined by human failure failure. Once Jesus saves you, you cannot ruin your life. <laughs> oh, I'm blown away by Christ. Christ doesn't start scratching his head and said, well, I did the best I can. I'll, I'll have to give up on that one. No, Oh, the shepherd struck, the sheep are scattered, but Jesus says, I'm coming to get you. I wish I had time to tell you how many times the Lord has come to get me. But if I started talking about it, I would probably leave out too much because there there, there are so many times that Christ has come to get me and to restore me, I cannot count them all. So many things I've done that should have ruined my life. Glory to God! But I'm into Psalm 23 right now. He restores my soul. Glory to God. Discipleship continues with Jesus. Renewal continues with Jesus. I can't speak for you, but I know how I feel. I do not want to fail my savior. He died for me and saved me when I called on him by faith. He saved me. He blessed me, he used me, and he's done more than I could ever ask or think. His grace has been sufficient for every valley. His love has never wavered. His word has always proven itself to be true. He's given me everything and I owe him absolute love and devotion in return. I do not want to fail him. But here's what I know. I know I have failed him. And here's what I know. Not even hate to utter these words. I will fail him more in the future. I know that, and you better know it too, unless you think your sanctification is already done. You will. He's not done with you yet. But here's what else I know. Here's the reason we'll be restored, because according to John 10, he's the good shepherd. He doesn't abandon his sheep, no, he lays down his life for the sheep. Even when it came uh, to get Jesus in the garden, John and John 1889, we find Jesus interceding for the disciples, let them be allowed to leave the garden peacefully. He always restores his sheep. He always restores his sheep. He always restores his sheep. He restores us. He chastens us. He disciplines us. He draws us back to him. He puts us in situations and all of a sudden, boom, we're confronted with Jesus. Somebody starts talking to us about Jesus, right? He brings us to the end of ourselves when we can do nothing else but cry out for help. And then there he is. He picks us up. He turns us around, doesn't he? He encourages repentance. He gives us complete complete forgiveness and restoration. Thank God for restoration and forgiveness. Thank God that Jesus is not the God of a second chance. Because if he was, we would have exhausted our chances five minutes or less after being saved. But thank God he's the shepherd. Let's not even call him the God of of chances. He's the shepherd who continues to restore his sheep. Jesus says it's not about how many chances you get. It's about who I am. (laughs) It's about me being the great shepherd who gives his life for the sheep, and all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and I will lose none, and I will continue to restore. Wow, what a promise. His resurrection is our resurrection and our life. And his restoration that he speaks to the disciples is our restoration continually because of who he is. Lastly, this passage is sweet to my soul. In verses 29 through 31, the pronouncements. The pronouncements. We're seeing the prophecies, a prophecy of a fall in verse 27, and a prophecy. Of fulfillment. We've seen the promises, the promise of resurrection, verse 28, the promise of restoration. Note the pronouncements, three things here. In verse 29, the first pronouncement is a denial. In verse 30, The second pronouncement is a declaration. In verse 31, the third pronouncement is a debate. Notice first, the first pronouncement, verse 29, comes in the form of a denial. It's like Peter missed the promise, didn't he? Peter is locked in on verse 27. It's like he never heard verse 28, the promise of resurrection and restoration. Peter said to him, (laughs) watch this, saints. Never say never. Even though they all fall away, I, will not. Peter speaks quickly. But don't miss what he's saying here. Peter does not deny the prophecy as such, but he insisted upon one exception to it. Oh, yeah. I'm not denying the prophecy, Lord even though they all fall away, but you just messed up just a little bit, I will not. See, even though admits the general statement, while I will not insist upon a contrast between all of the rest of the disciples and himself, much, of course, to his own prideful credit, So, Peter's claim contradicted the explicit statement of Jesus. I believe that Peter loved Jesus. But this statement reveals his sad ignorance of his own weakness. With his boast, Peter arrogantly elevated himself above the other disciples. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. See, the response is not mere self-sufficiency and conceited self-reliance, but it is an arrogant estimate of his own strength in comparison with others, particularly with his brethren, yeah. yeah. remember after the resurrection, after Peter did deny Christ,
1: and John 21 speaks says these words in John 21:15 of me. One of the disciples ready to walk with Jesus. If you follow this chronologically, prior
0: to this, the disciples had been arguing about who's the greatest.
2: He was ready to prove it. go with him all the way to today. Saints, because he's putting confidence
1: in himself. He's entirely misplaced himself, rather than comforting in Christ, rather than asking Christ, he him all prepared.
2: You know why we and prideful because we don't know. It. He had a strong self-image. The no world would admire
1: that strong self-image. Nope. Himself. He saw himself. Saints. Peter's
2: caused by not, not knowing himself.
1: Contradicting Jesus instead of listening to him. Listen to Jesus. Listen to me now.
0: Jesus was telling them in the prophecy of the fall about the deceitfulness and weakness of the human heart. He didn't listen. We get into so much. Because we just don't listen. It's the word of God. We won't listen to people that tell us the truth. Then we get into something, and we wish we had
1: listened Listen. Peter is overconfident because he's not listening Don't worry, you never go that far. OK. form of a declaration
2: Jesus won't let him get away Jesus said,
1: Peter Peter said I never did it's very or the crows twice Wow. the one who were because were not and, and Jesus said to them, you're, you're greater than you. they're going to obey you will deny me not one time not two times but three times you will deny me Jesus very nice. Wow. Who was? i mention who's giving this information. for the scripture God's word, no what right. Of, denies is a very strong word.
2: It means to refuse to recognize.' saying that very night.
0: Peter would deny
2: any personal
0: connection to Jesus. That's a shocking prophecy. Peter would deny Jesus almost immediately that very night. He would deny Jesus repeatedly, not just once or twice but three times. He would deny Jesus emphatically protesting, protesting that he did not even know the man. Now listen, saints. A threefold denial on a momentary slip of weakness. Three times hammers into Peter and to us how quickly we can talk about, oh, how I love Jesus. How quickly we can lift our hands and, and say
2: praise to the Lord. How quickly we can use the same song. Uh,
0: Peter says, I'll never deny you. The night doesn't even end, and he denies it. Not one time, not two times, but three times. Listen very carefully. It is of no use to protest that we have not committed the sins that we self righteously. Condemn others. The question is not what sins we have committed as much as what sins we would commit were we faced with serious pressure, temptation, opportunity, and threat. We ought to pause and thank God for his protecting providence. Because if God had providentially allowed us to be in situations that others fell in, we would have done the same thing. Never say never. The prophecy came true. By the end of the night, Peter would weep bitter tears of his triple denial. He failed because he tried to be strong in his own strength, not knowing his weakness. Look at Peter and be warned today. Look at Peter and be warned today. Watch where you step. When you're not looking, you might step into something messy. Abide in the Savior. Never think you're beyond the reach If you have any confidence in ourselves instead of having all of our confidence in Christ, we're doomed for failure. Two pronouncements. We see a denial. We see a declaration by Christ. Lastly, we see a debate, a debate. Now, did you hear what Jesus just said? You would think that Peter would back up and say, Oh, okay. But remember, he's not listening to Jesus. He's not thinking about who it is that's talking to him right now. So there's a debate. But he said emphatically, that's Peter. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said. A little grammar here the word said he said he said emphatically it's an imperfect tense in the greek language which means he didn't say it just one time he kept on saying it he kept on protesting imagine the scene they're walking they're, they're, they're on their way to the garden of gethsemane and they're walking and and and, and as they're walking jesus had just said this to them and, now Peter is trying to debate Jesus and he kept saying oh uh, uh, if I die if I have to die with you I will not deny you uh, uh, Jesus if I have to die with you I'm telling you if I have to die with you I will not deny you Jesus I heard what you said but if I have to die with you I will not deny you and they just walking and Jesus just walking Peter if You see that? <laughs> this is so amazing. That if implies expectancy. He's willing to admit joint death might be necessary. But fear of death will not induce me, Jesus, to deny you. This is a very strong statement. I will in no wise deny you. That's what he's saying. I'll never deny you. They kill me, I won't deny you. Oh, glory, they hang me on the cross next to you. I will not deny you. Listen to this. Peter's position was approved and accepted by the other disciples. Because the text says, they all said the same. Which means no one's listening to Jesus. <laughs> they accept Peter as their spokesman. Truly, he was the leader, at least in denying that he would deny. <laughs> but notice here, they all said the same? They didn't have to say it, did they? The text says, and they all said the same, they didn't have to say it, did they? Even if they were feeling it, they didn't have to say it, did they? I'm emphasizing that because I I, I want to point out something here. They're not guilty by association. They're not guilty by association. They didn't have to say it, did they? They're not guilty by association. Because when time comes for boldness, notice each of the disciples manages to speak for himself. Chapter 14, verse 23, they all drank the cup. Verse 31, here in our text, they all confess their allegiance. Chapter 14, verse 50, they all fled. All of them are blinded by pride and overconfidence. And There's no guilt by association. They're all responsible for their own pride and confidence. Peter's not listening to Jesus. They're not listening to Jesus. I will make a point there. just not good to be hanging around people that won't listen to Jesus. Trying to hang around folk that listen to Jesus. Well, how do I know they're listening to Jesus? Because their life will reflect it. Their life will show that they're listening to Jesus. Listen, pride, Goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Now in closing, what are we seeing? Well, we saw the prophecy in verse twenty-seven. It's a prophecy of a fall and a prophecy of fulfillment. In Christ alone. We saw the promise in verse 28. It was a promise of resurrection and a promise of restoration. We saw the pronouncements in verse 29 through 31. There was a denial by Peter, a declaration by Christ, and then a debate. And they all said the same thing. Where is the hope for the disciples? You know, in placing the last supper between the betrayal and the defection of the disciples, Mark very vividly conveys that the many for whom Jesus pours out his life Includes his own disciples around the table. And I want to say to you and to myself the sin, the sin that necessitates the sending of God's Son is not someone else's sin. It's not Judas, it's not Nero, it's ours. It's Peter, it's James, it's John, it's you, it's me. And with all of our debating, and our denials, and our pride, and our failure to listening to to Jesus, the only hope that we have is found in the person of Christ, the work of Christ, and the promises of Christ. That's the only hope that we have. He must go to the cross for our sins. Thank God for the clear-sighted Savior. And make sure
2: that you never say never.